The podcast. Your baby. I just want to give a major content warning for violence against women, violence against people of color, murder, all that gory shit that is going to get covered. So yeah. if that's not your thing, just like go ahead and skip to the next episode and we will not judge you. <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to the What the F podcast. My name's Peyton. My name's Mac. And we are here for season two, episode two. So um, if you haven't listened to our season two intro slash like, oh, fuck, what's the word? Oh, premiere. If you haven't listened <laughs> to our scene, season two premiere, be sure to go check it out. And today, as per Mac's genius suggestion, we really wanted to talk about mm-hmm. like the ethics of true crime. So if you kind of want to like just so mac tell me (laughs) what what made you interested in talking about this for today i think the biggest thing is knowing that we kind of have a weird fascination with it because it's something we don't understand and it's especially become super popular nowadays because we have things like social media we have different like documentaries and docuseries coming out on netflix and i think especially with the rise of the new series dahmer um, well, Monster, actually. Things have oh, gotten yeah. like, really popular. For sure. So kind of an overview of true crime is, you know, as we know, it's like based off of crime that has actually happened. And it's been like something that people have talked about for centuries, but it's really gotten more popular, like Max said, in the age of media. And it was really popularized in 1966 with a book called In Cold Blood. It was written about like a murder of a family in Kansas, and it was actually like number one New York Times bestseller. And now, like Mac had kind of mentioned, you can find like true crime like podcasts, YouTube channels, television series, even like news stations like Fox will cover it. And it's like one of the most popular podcast and TV genres. It's mostly an American thing, but there's a lot of like high profile international cases that get talked about, too. And so something that we really wanted to touch on because it's like most like relevant at this time would be like true crime documentaries and but more importantly like dramatizations of true crime documentaries yeah so obviously one of the biggest things with the podcast docuseries documentaries films things like that especially with the way they dramatize events and add details for artistic style um it obviously re-traumatizes the families and oftentimes they're not informed of when these things are getting released Mm -hmm. so it's we have to imagine putting ourselves in their shoes and thinking every time that a new series comes out they're reliving the horrific event that their like family member went through or that they had to go through themselves because not all true crime is like murder yeah Yeah. it's not all murder so it's just hard because you have tons of like big directors and actors and things Mm -hmm. promoting these films and profiting off of the trauma Yeah. yeah and it's as much as I do love these people and I think they're very talented, I think it kind of says a lot that they do get the most profit from it because most of the time the victims are like completely not involved. In oh, that's so true because that money's not going to it's victims' not. families. It's, it's going to going. Netflix Corp. Exactly. And I think the fact that most the first time that a lot of people are hearing about these series coming out is when it's actually already been released okay that's crazy i have to jump in that's crazy to me like seeing people online that were like i didn't know who jeffrey dahmer bitch how the i'm so sorry (laughs) do you live (laughs) under a rock like how do you not know like and i guess part of the reason is because like some of those cases are starting to get like 30 40 years old but even so it's like crazy to me like to 
imagine that that is people's first time hearing about that because I'm like yeah how did you not and it's it's concerning that it's the first time that they hear about it it is too and I think even more concerning is seeing how people have normalized or like in some way desensitize how horrific these things are oh yeah in some way like I've seen so many posts so many tiktoks of people like putting the images out the crime Mm -hmm. scenes things like that and it's just become so normal and it's so uncomfortable I went to a like podcast website web I almost said episode. <laughs> I went to a podcast website after listening to an episode. Yeah. It was on this case that's like the rape of Nanjing. And it was like this really bad war crime case that occurred in China. And I was like, oh, you know, I just want to see like what kind of sources they were using. So I go to the website and the cover image was like a incredibly like triggering image. And I yeah. was like, whoa. But I think the scary thing with trigger warnings, too, is like they're not usually on just like the open web. Like no. oftentimes you can just look something like if you look up Jeffrey Dahmer, there's no promise that you're going to look into images and it's not going to come up with right. like, images of his victims, of Polaroids he's taken. Like that stuff is right. scary. You can stumble upon this stuff. And I think that's what's most horrifying is that you may not even be searching for it and you may see it. And anyways. it's just like out there. And then yeah. you have to go about your day as if that's not something that you'd have to process. It's almost like mm-hmm. we never process the stuff that we're taking. Oh in. my God. We just stop. Like, stop. 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 Because it. I, Okay, so I wrote my first blog post yesterday, and (laughs) one of the drafts that I was thinking about writing about was, like, how, like, news cycle, like, constantly re-traumatizes people on, Mm -hmm. like, a cultural media level, and then you never get the chance to process it before something else happens. Obviously, true crime is different because you're talking about past events, and people are kind of oftentimes going out of their way to find content like TV shows and things like that, but it is re-traumatizing, like you said, for the victims, and it's, like, way more intense than reading, like, a detached news article headline. And you had, like, mentioned, like, things, like, specific to the Dahmer series that were, like, super problematic with the victims' families. It's so frustrating to me that in some of these series, the new Dahmer one especially and Monster, they, the way they portray the victims and their stories, sometimes they misrepresent events and it leads to people for people to misinterpret these things mm-hmm. and oftentimes the first recount of a story or the first reenactment you see is what you build your perspective on whether or not it's true because you're seeing it first right. and that's so true and it's scary because you're gonna form a whole opinion a whole perspective and belief just off of one side of a story because mm-hmm. most times as much as I'd like to say that I'm gonna watch a film and then take the time to research it, you're not. It's hard, and I'm probably <laughs> right. not. So yeah. I'm gonna see this one thing, this one retelling, and be like, and I'm gonna take it as fact, which mm-hmm. is dangerous, and a lot of people do it. And it's even worse because in the monster series, there's this one victim, and I may say his name wrong. I'm mm-hmm. gonna try to say it the best I can, okay. but in the case of Conorex uh, and Thassimphone, the series addresses how he had a brother who was also sexually assaulted by Dahmer and they portray as he understood and knew that Jeffrey Dahmer was the man who did this to his brother and it kind of leads people to question why would he willingly go with Dahmer knowing like what he was capable of and Uh, what he did okay so like after after his brother had been assaulted and come to light he later like went with Dahmer to his like house exactly yeah so and then they make it seem as if his reasoning for going was simply that the money that Jeffrey was offering him for, to take nude photos was mm-hmm. like something he needed. And which like, even family, if it yeah. was, you don't understand people's struggles. Exactly. Like that's not that's even, what I'm like, saying. even if like, that was the reason, like, okay, that's obviously you're at a point in your life where you are that desperate. You can't judge someone exactly. for the decisions they make in that time. And his family had immigrated to America. So at the time, like it, money was something that mm-hmm. his family definitely needed. 
And so they almost make it seem as if it's his own fault and it kind of opens up the discussion for people to start victim blaming him. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of that on TikTok and different like media, like social Mm -hmm. media, especially like there's a lot of threats. Exactly. But in truth, I like did a little bit more research into it and I found out that his family wasn't even made aware of the court date. Oh, especially because I, to my knowledge, his parents didn't speak English very well. Mm. So they weren't made aware of the court date. They had no idea what the man's name was and they had no idea what he looked like. So I feel like leaving out <laughs> I'm that, sorry, like exactly, that's kind of an important fucking detail if your kid's going to avoid someone. And it's just like leaving out small details like that leads someone to make a big jump, a big conclusion from his story. And yeah. it's almost so unfair because he's not, in, one, he's not included in his own retelling of his, like this traumatic event. And mm. then- it's left to be misinterpreted by right. Everyone. I just think that there's something like a little problematic about like casting actors to play people yeah. that are not here anymore, or even exactly. like people that got traumatized. Like I saw this thing where there is literally like a Gabby Petito movie mm-hmm. coming out, and it's like, bro, that case is less than two years old, and they're just like they want to get it's it out there because it's on timing. people's minds right now. But the case hasn't even been solved. And I feel and like, like at yeah. what point? Are we putting our own entertainment? Are we putting our own like interest above the needs mm-hmm. and the mourning of the victims and their families? Absolutely. You know, like, where do we draw that line? Right. And I think like I know you had also mentioned like just like portraying like like Errol Lindsay's sister or like like yes. the court clips. I saw those, but I didn't watch them all the way through. But I think it was even crazier to me to see how I've seen so many comparisons. Oh, wait, did you watch the series in full? I did. I watched okay. the thing in full. So. I did not. So this is, here's an important <laughs> contextualization for you all. Yeah. yeah. So in context, yes, unfortunately, I did watch the entire thing before I realized and saw like a lot of the controversy behind it. But mm-hmm. they like there's been clips where they do side by side clips of the reenactments mm-hmm. and the then series, like the filming of the, case. the actual case. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy. They have people who look exactly like the family members. They do like the wording, like word for word, mm-hmm. word for like word from the court tra- transcripts. And Errol Lindsay's older sister, she had this really powerful, really, really powerful speech where she comes in and you can already tell like the energy when she walks in. This woman is amazing like you can see the pain you can see the anger and like just fueling her speech and she says she like yells at jeffrey and she's like i hate you jeffrey and then at one point she even threatens to kill him and it's just like you can see how badly this is like the whole thing has affected her she even makes Mm -hmm. a statement where she's like i never want to see my mom go through something like this again and to me it's almost heartbreaking to see such an emotionally fueled moment being portrayed without her consent right and it's also interesting she literally says i never want to see my mom go through this again and now here you it is on the tv her mom going through it again and it's gonna and especially with high profile or very infamous obviously it just it never goes away right i can't imagine having to relive one of the worst moments of my life one of the worst periods of my life over and over again for everyone else's right. profit and entertainment. Yeah, for sure. And then like you had mentioned, there's also the issue of like, just like highly sensitive content being put out online, which exactly. is like at that point, like I understand like the need for that to be publicly available. Like there's obviously laws where like after a certain time, case documents and like things like that become publicly available. But I feel like that's really like that's for like investigators. That's for someone who's going to go write a book. Like it doesn't need to be out there for me to just go like, 
quick exactly. on it. Like, <laughs> I, and it's so weird to me that people are so fascinated with these cases that they'll go as far as to see the actual images mm. for it because oh, yeah. that's stuff that you can never erase from your mind. Like that's something you can never get away from. It's even scary to me too is like knowing that people are going as far as to look at these images mm -hmm. and I saw this post where they were promoting the pages that you can go on to see the images Dude. and all you see in the comment section is people saying oh, I'm scarred for life or mm -hmm. I missed the 10 seconds before I saw this and it's like we say these things almost lightheartedly mm -hmm. and we say it almost sarcastically but in reality I don't think you'd like, say it I would not like, say sarcastically <laughs> but it's almost like we're saying it but not really processing the weight of what you've seen mm -hmm. you know like these images you can't get rid of like that's right. something that's going to stick with you and that's a lot of it is traumatizing stuff but then we're mm -hmm. expected to just you know go about our day and like move right. on from yeah. that stuff without addressing it and it's weird and i think mm -hmm. It's just like desensitization of intense violence. Exactly. And then when we dramatize like really horrific crimes, it's almost like we're we have to separate reality and fantasy and like the things we watch. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like we take these real life crimes and compartmentalize them with, you know, fantasy. Because right. at the end of the day, we can turn off our TV. We can close our laptop like we can get away from these things in mm -hmm. a way that the victims families can't. Right. And so almost unconsciously yeah. we're telling ourselves when we do this stuff when we watch these horrific things and then just move on with our day we're like desensitizing ourselves to it and saying almost like this isn't reality you know? right like this that oh that really, was a nice story like, that was a nice was a cool yeah. story like this is interesting right. and but, i feel like it's one thing entirely to like have a fictional tv show about a fictional serial killer yeah. or a fictional murder but like the actual use of names and things is crazy and there's like a couple like of um podcast episodes that i've listened to where if it's like a foreign case or like someone with like a chinese or korean name they'll give them an english name like they'll give them a white name and it's like yeah, dude it's that's disgusting. literal identity erasure just for like the audience to understand it better and i notice like a lot of podcasts will say like oh we have some major characters some major players in this story it's like those aren't characters anymore it's not and i think for a series it's easier for them to be able to make their own story from right. real true events than like to do the work of finding out what happened. Exactly. Because sometimes in reality, life is like not as entertaining. Yeah, it's not. It's really not. And it's almost like they find details or they exaggerate details mm -hmm. and they'll like rearrange like complete stories. And right. it's just like, how like do the you order do of what happened? Yeah. yeah. Just because it's more fitting to the series and it's right. more appealing for other people to yeah. watch. And not to mention like, Wait, I'm curious. I'm going to briefly yeah. Google what Evan Peters looks like in comparison to Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. Because I'm really curious to see whether or not he they're making him look more conventionally attractive with Evan Peters. But that's the other oh thing. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, Evan Peters doesn't look great, but <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just think like, yeah, something we also had wanted to touch on was like how not only do you like romanticize or dramatize and desensitize, there's also this like high potential to romanticize yeah. um, serial killers and like those that perpetrate true crime, which is actually fucking nuts to me. <laughs> it is though because we're having big name celebrities, really well known people mm -hmm. who are you know they're usually attractive, right? Like, like without Peters, a doubt, we have not Evan in this Peters, role, but in American Horror. Wait, like, who did he? Oh, he portrayed he... Ted Bundy. <gasps> I forgot about exactly. that. Exactly. And I forgot you about had that. these really famous, really conventionally attractive people mm -hmm. portraying horrific, evil people. Right. So it almost kind of 
makes these people more of a character and less right. of a terrible well, person. And I feel like also, besides the fact that, like, sure, people said Ted Bundy was conventionally attractive, that doesn't really matter. What matters is that when you mm. have this actor step into this role, as hard you can try and i feel like it varies from actor to actor and like how familiar you are with them yeah but you see an actor and you already have like this preconceived idea of the characters they play the personality they have and what they bring to the table like when i see like maybe like chris evans i'm expecting like a very type of heroic chad like character yeah, and no so doubt. even though like someone like evan peters usually plays really fucked up people like someone like zach efron doesn't like that's a high school musical so like you're walking in and even if you don't subconsciously realize it you're having like these feelings of admiration or respect or even attraction to like the actor that gets a little bit muddled with the character no matter how hard you try it's confusing it's mm -hmm. definitely confusing and it's off-putting yeah to think that we're a lot of this is not even conscious it's not like i'd like to say that most people aren't terrible people like right you know, but it's just hard. Like right. We just have so much being fed to us. We have so much that we're seeing every day. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just hard when a lot of the media is clouded with like horrific images. And then yeah. you just... It's hard to like find the time and space to like separate that from who you actually are yeah, and what you want to be. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And it's weird, too, because as much as I'm saying these things, mm -hmm. I know for a fact one of my favorite things to watch is a true crime show. I love true crime. I'm the same. I, um, I'll touch more on this later when we get into the interesting question of why white women are like <laughs> yeah. one of the main demographics that yeah. like true crime. But like I am a true crime fan. And so like something that I've been like thinking about recently is like, OK, is there an ethical way for me to consume true crime? And if there isn't, I mean, like, I should probably stop. Exactly. Like, find something else. Because, I mean, and obviously, thank God neither of us are, like, major serial killer fans. But <laughs> yeah. I keep seeing, like, little memes about Jeffrey or, like, yes. fan cams. Like, people are making fan cams yes. or, like, thirst edits. But the scary thing is people were real-life groupies, real-life fans back in the day. of some of these serial right. killers at the like, time. Like, they were getting they letters. Were, they yes. were getting girlfriends mm -hmm. outside prison. I found this article that said that Jeffrey Dahmer got sent $12,000 from fans around the world. One woman mm -hmm. in London gave him $6,000. Like $6,000. And this man is just like using it to pay off court fees, like buying himself magazines, things to entertain himself with. Like I just like the inability, I guess, to hear about all that shit and still decide. And it is a condition called like, what is it? it I almost said it's hemophilia. That's a blood disorder. It's hybristophilia. <laughs> it's hybristophilia. But there's one thing. It's just like being attracted to criminals generally. There is a very big difference between having a crush on a drug dealer or like someone who robs people yeah. and like, <laughs> like a robber or a Yay. drug dealer or like uh, something like that. There's yeah. a big difference between that and like a serial killer, a and serial rapist or a rapist or a killer. It literally goes back to the whole idea that oftentimes we're seeing these people as more of characters mm -hmm. rather than genuinely evil people. And then we also, again, like mm -hmm. we have some of our favorite actors portraying them right so well but then what do you say like when back in the day when there was no actors in media? Like, i don't honestly, even know what that was i can't even, I can't even explain that because <laughs> what the fuck was no that sense. so there's another really prolific serial killer richard ramirez he was a child molester this is a night stalker yes the night stalker yeah. he was a child molester serial rapist he was mm -hmm. convicted of 13 murders Honestly, his case is very interesting, I will say, if you guys want to look into that. But um, he would have women who claimed to be his fans attending many of his court appearances. And they even went to his sentencing in 1989 
and mm. some of these fangirls would wave and smile at him to which he would like respond by waving and smiling back oh so my god it's almost like you're feeding into his their like, ego narcissism yeah no because most serial killers are narcissists exactly. and if they're not they have like an intense need for desire maybe that doesn't go to full-blown mm. narcissism i just like can't I've read, like, or you hear about, like, people who go and meet serial killers, who interview them, who are in charge of detaining them, and, like, they kill themselves. Like, there are literally, like, Mm -hmm. detectives who work on these cases or, like, prosecutors who will, like, commit suicide. You hear about it because, like, they've seen all this content we've been talking about or they interact with a serial killer. Or maybe they go home and they start having nightmares after, like, interviewing Ted Bundy. And so, like... I just can't imagine like having that interaction and not being traumatized. But I can't. Instead being feeling like empowered kind of like I don't I feel like that's almost I don't want to say pick me, but it is almost pick me. But to a completely yeah. different and like psychologically it's, concerning level. It's like pick me to the next level. It's right. like you're begging. You're begging for someone's attention at that point. And right. It's like so disgusting to me because i was reading how richard ramirez ended up marrying no one of his groupies oh my god and to me it's like you are marrying was he like someone. in prison at the time yes how the fuck is that you're legal marrying someone who you know is a terrible person you know all the things he did right especially the fact that some of his crimes were against children that's right. disgusting that's like horrible right. and then to go and marry this yeah. person what's really like angering to me is that like with woman who had like a crush on like Dahmer it's yeah. like you know what his victims weren't women they were people of color and so it's like almost like saying like well I guess I don't care that he killed people if that's who he killed which is nuts it is or like people serial killers who kill sex workers and then women are obsessed with him we're like well I'm not a sex worker he wouldn't have killed me like I you gotta like seriously value your sense of like social justice in society from the ground up if that is how you're thinking at that point and it's angering because it's almost like you have to understand what a narcissist is like Like (laughs) i'm sorry for laughing i'm so sorry for laughing um (laughs) been there done that (laughs) like narcissists can't love anyone more than they love their themselves and they can't love anyone more than they love their own self-interest and what they want well and like notwithstanding that like Obviously, not all narcissists are murderous people. Exactly. These guys are like also mm-hmm. like so-so psychopaths, like schizoids. But and obviously not all people with those disorders either. Like not every almost every single psychopath is harmless. Like they're completely yes. mentally gone, but yes. they're harmless. And so I always find it really this is another point we that I wanted to talk about with romanticizing serial killers mm-hmm. is that a lot of times, I mean, and it is interesting to learn, like I understand people who understand and like psychology, who want to learn about like, okay, what happened? What went wrong? But a lot of times there not all the time. Some of the times the abuse is extraordinary, but a lot of times there is nothing in there that like thousands of abused children did not undergo and never became a serial killer like there are so many victims of childhood abuse molestation all these terrible things that no one should ever have to go through but those people turn around and don't become serial killers or rapists or anything and so like i always like get kind of irritated when people are like oh well that's why he was like that that's not (laughs) like there's something deeper wrong there like there's a combination it's it's a combination of everything and you can't just like you can't justify using someone's life circumstances alone i feel like it comes from like a place of like privilege entitlement as well yeah with a lot of these killers and then that brings up the whole argument of nurture versus nature and (laughs) 
that is just a whole nother realm that gets really complicated. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted to say really quick before we like move on from this topic yeah. that some of Bundy's groupies went as far as to dress as his victims <gasps> in his court appearances. And to Stop. me, that was so angering. Like no. it genuinely made me so mad. Right. I just like, and something I kind of, I'm just like looking at what else I had wanted to mention yeah. was that like, a lot of times like this can if it's an active case this shit can throw a case off it can throw a jury off and like also on back on the subject of like serial killers being narcissists or a lot of them like in the example of killers who turn themselves in or have a manifesto or a political statement they want that attention and media coverage more than anything yeah. like the zodiac killer and killers like that and so like when we make movies of them that glamorize them or when we fangirl after them, we're giving them exactly what they wanted. We're giving them a sense of celebrity. We're giving like them that's the what attention. they wanted all along. Yeah. And then e it's, whether they're dead or not, it's <laughs> like, a huge, huge lack of attention. Well, attention in like a respectful sense mm -hmm. for the victims. Right. That's, we almost yeah. acknowledge the evil people, the serial killers, more. the murderers, more than we acknowledge the people who went through this and it's like we mm -hmm. by doing that we again are desensitizing the whole thing like we're making big names out of horrible people rather than people bringing who, more awareness like, yeah. to the people who actually suffer from and this suffering. Yeah. yeah right and i just think i guess like another point that i wanted to make as like i trans we transition here was that like i just find it interesting like the mental cartwheels that like people and obviously most people aren't like these extremes we're just like mentioning these issues and sides of the concept because i think they influence like even the average true crime enjoyer like mac over here like, <laughs> is like still influenced by this kind of content and opinion even if you, it's not something you believe but i just like find it really interesting like the mental cartwheels that people will do to like justify these killers and who are like let's be real they're mostly white like men aside like i mean yeah there's a few serial killers that have been people of color and male there's hardly any female serial killers yeah. they're almost all white men and they'll, like, do mental cartwheels for this shit and, like, try to get them out on bail when you literally have, like, black men doing life in prison for three counts of marijuana. Like, how the fuck? And nobody is doing that for them. Like, that justification mm -hmm. that, oh, they had this happen. They had that happen. So, like, I just I just can't. Like, sometimes I'll, I will start to get a little mad. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's just it's crazy to me that people will, like, do that just because they're white men and, like, will romanticize them, find them attractive. Whereas I have the feeling that, like, I haven't watched like the Richard Ramirez like documentary, but I even have a feeling that like just like the support for serial killers, if they're men, like people of color or just like people of color that don't do non like do nonviolent crimes. The support isn't there, which is like ridiculous because that's where it should be. Yeah. Oh, Max, Max said, <clears throat> I, I got a little something to say. <laughs> no, my, oh, my, I thought, my mucus just in my throat. <laughs> speaks volumes about our society about where we are yeah as people right and there's definitely room for improvement without a doubt i will say there's <laughs> yeah <room for> improvement. <laughs> like, max said elephant <laughs> in the room like hello yeah, let's address this elephant in the room but <laughs> i i hope that we find a good medium of portraying these events but also doing learning, it ethically yeah <laughs> doing it ethically and then if we're going to portray these horrific things, these really big, high-profile cases, let's also bring awareness to 
like smaller nonviolent things where people need the support people need like the attention for their cases and not that victims of true crime don't need attention for their cases it's not what we're implying not that at all yeah but but like that there are other issues going on in the criminal justice system that are Mm -hmm. just as important as a case that happened 40 years ago but i think the issue with true crime now is and why I said what I said, like, without mm-hmm. a doubt, the victims deserve the attention and the respect. But it's now with true crime, it's almost like we're giving the attention to the, to the offender. Like, yeah, like we, we mentioned, we yeah. have a bad habit of doing that. Mm-hmm. And so it I'd like to see a change where we start shifting it over to the victims mm-hmm. and hearing their perspective and especially their families. Like, I'd right. love to know more about in a non-invasive way. And right, if that's what they want too. to share. If they're comfortable with that, I'd love to hear, like, how it impacted them and, like, you right. know. Right, yeah. Like, it, give that space to them if it's something that they want. Exactly, because it also gives the option for them to be able mm-hmm. to, I don't come w- have closure for what mm-hmm. happened. Right. And I think that's something that everybody right. needs. And I think, like, a lot of times for closure, all families want is for it to not be talked about. And if that's the case, then, like people producing this media should respect that or if we're producing this media and we're profiting off of it why is none of the money being put to memorials because there was supposed to be uh they wanted a memorial bill at the site where one of the apartments that jeffrey dahmer used to live at and committed a lot of murders Mm -hmm. they wanted a memorial to be built after it was demolished yeah but they never did it and so (laughs) and then there's so much money coming from all this other money coming from the series so why are we not pouring that money into something like that right that like has been expressed by the community that that's something Mm -hmm. that they want yeah damn speaking nothing but facts today i just hope (laughs) in the future that we see a shift towards more of the victims perspectives or a shift at least if we're you know or both honestly like a shift Mm -hmm. towards the victims and also a shift towards smaller cases and bringing awareness to un I don't know injustice right to case right cases of wrongful conviction cases where that are still unsolved things like that and so before we talk about like how to do I I, (laughs) it's funny because I put it in my notes as how to do true crime ethically I don't mean how to ethically (laughs) commit crimes guys although I do think that some Uh. crimes I do think some crimes are ethical like pirating but (laughs) depending on the context I did Um, that last night (laughs) (laughs) like that's so that's so real of you we oh I just thought of like yeah. a really my, stupid Halloween costume. My culture. FBI AJ and I watched Footloose last night, so <laughs> <laughs> and it was right good. there with you. Oh my god! So b- anyway, before we talk about like the ethics of how to do true crime, how to cover true crime ethically, I really wanted to like talk about because this is something I've been thinking about like before you had mentioned doing this podcast was like why do women, especially white women, enjoy true crime so much? And like because I had. I think I was like, not back to Tinder, but this guy had like asked me, he was like, why do you girls like love true crime so much? And I was like, whoa, wait, why do we? <laughs> I think it's a really interesting. So I guess if, if we want to start by saying like our own, because I know like we both enjoy true crime and then we can like dive into some of the more general reasons why women might be drawn towards it. Yes. I can go first if you want. Yes. Okay. But you're going to have such a good answer that it'll be like, uh, uh, Well, uh. do you want to go first? Though? No, you go. Okay. You go first. <laughs> no, you hang up. <laughs> okay. Um, I think... I think for me, the more that I was thinking about it is that it kind of came from a place of already fearing and knowing that there's things like this in the world. And I think that what I try to do is justify to myself that I'm like taking preventative measures just by the sheer act of learning about what criminals do. And I think to a certain respect that is true and that that has helped me. Like there's a lot of things that I don't, I mean, that I never would do, but now I especially don't do. Like I don't 
I never let a man pick me up from my house. I never let them drop me off at my house. I don't let them like whatever. Like I, you just like start to avoid these situations because it gets perpetrated. But I think the issue is that is that like when I think about it critically, that's not even that helpful because the true crime cases I'm listening to are from like the 90s. Nobody's doing that anymore. <laughs> like they're a completely new and terrifying. Like you hear about it all the time. Like I heard about this girl getting like poisoned with like, oh shit, what was it? like formalide or something formaldehyde in like texas and like it almost drugged her and knocked her out and she would have gotten kidnapped if her boyfriend hadn't been with her like there's like like the true crime world is not teaching you that shit the true crime world isn't teaching you how to like fight someone off on the side of the street and so i think ultimately what it comes down to is desensitizing myself to violence not preparing for it but desensitizing myself so Mm. that i feel less afraid of it and I think it's also just like to an extent, I think it's a shock value. Like we, there's just like this pleasure in being so disgusted. And that's like, a, that's something that I need to like evaluate in myself. But yeah, <laughs> that was a really long answer. <laughs> no, I agree with you on that. I think a lot of people are like that too. And mm. I'll admit I'm like that. Mm. I think being able to see this, like we mentioned before, being able to see it on a screen almost makes it easier for me to separate myself from it and mm-hmm. be like, all right. This is what I need to do in the future to try to protect myself or try right. to take preventative measures or maybe, mm-hmm. you know, evaluating what I like, how I handle myself, mm-hmm. you know, at night and just things like that. Right. But at the same time, I think another thing that draws me into it is I'm really into psychology. Mm. I think it's a very cool science. Right. And so seeing it from that standpoint is very fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something about not understanding something someone does or knowing that I could never do these horrible crimes. I could never, like, be... What's crazy to me is that, like, sorry interjecting no no you're fine. a lot of people have like like if i think about it like a lot of people think about it you couldn't even kill a person period mm-hmm. if it wasn't in self-defense and so the act of like doing it in the way that these people do it and doing it to the extent is what's like really crazy yeah i think it's almost like trying to understand something that is so unfathomable for me it's right. just like i can't even process the fact that I could barely even kill a spider because I'm scared of them. Oh, not so me. I'm so scared. <laughs> that bitch is gone. <laughs> no, I just, you I ever can't. need a bug killed, Mac? Just call no, me. I'll be honestly, on my way. you can come kill every single one because okay. I just can't. So mm-hmm. knowing that someone can do this to another person is just like, I just can't process it most mm-hmm. of the time. And yeah. so I think in some ways watching these true crime podcasts and just different serious things like that doesn't, I don't. I still will never understand mm-hmm. and I can't ever empathize or sympathize with the crimes, but right. or like the, the killers, the yeah. killers, but it almost gives me more insight into right. like what's going on in their head. Yeah. That's really valid. So something that I had read about this very morning <laughs> <laughs> as I was researching for this podcast, um, it was from like a journal of psychological and sociological sciences. It talked about like kind of listening to true crime things as an evolved survival strategy. It says, um, one author put that stories can be a mental dress rehearsal of sorts, a way of unpacking and understanding dangerous situations that haven't yet happened to them. So it's like almost like preparing and imagining that these things will happen to you. And there's definitely podcasts that do this. Like there's a podcast called My Favorite Murder where the two hosts, like they'll do like listener tales. And so it's literally like people call in and they're like, yeah, so listen to this crazy story about how I almost got kidnapped. Oh my like, and so that's kind of a different like yeah. preventative measure way of doing it and then you have victims themselves who are like i want to share my story and i want to like educate other people and so i think the ethics of that is a little bit different but i feel like 
a lot of times, and I don't know how you feel about this, and obviously this isn't every case, this isn't the Dahmer case, but I think a lot of times, maybe not always with serial killers, but a lot of focus goes on to like murders of white women and middle class white women. Like if you've ever heard of like John Benet Ramsey or yeah. even like, um, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I had some of them written in here, like Amanda Knox or like John Benet Ramsey. Like you have like the stories of white women going missing and are like so much more emphasized. And something that I've noticed is that either because the information isn't available or what is more likely that people didn't bother to get it is that like in a lot of cases with white women, you get like the story of like, oh, this is like what she'd go jogging and this is what her community said about her. And this is what she wanted to be and her favorite food and blah, blah, blah. And that's good information. But then with victims of color, it's just like you rattle them off. Like I've noticed, like, especially because a lot of the victims of serial killers are victims of color or marginalized groups, because that's how these killers get away with this shit for so long. And so I feel like a lot of times when you get to that, they're just there's not like the amount of time and effort spent on victims who are not white women is like crazy. It's almost like you have to have like this perfect victim that would deserve attention and deserve their story. And the thing is, it's not even just with the stories. It's not even just with the reenactments, things like that. It's even in the way that it's portrayed in the news. It's the way that it's handled in courts. Right. Like going back to like white serial killers. I know it's like a lot of a lot. This comparison gets made so much online where you have like a story, a headline, and it's about a white man who did some really, really terrible act. And it's like the nicest, cutest photo of him with his family ever. Yeah, it's always like family man turned murderer. <laughs> and it's, like, it's like it's like them at their Christmas tree. And it's yeah, like, like, oh my God. Like, why are we getting a Christmas tree? Yeah, meanwhile, <laughs> you have like some like black teenager gets like arrested for mm. shoplifting and they put like the most like unflattering and un like I don't want to say flattering, but I just want to say like like defaming almost like mugshot ever. Yeah. Like and then the mug the white guy gets his like Christmas card put up. And then they almost make an effort to somewhat pick at the lives of the victims mm-hmm. and say, oh, well, like, especially when it's someone of color, it's like, oh, well, 10 years ago, they did this, this and that. Like, and bro, then it's that like, doesn't that's mean they irrelevant. deserve to die. Exactly. It's an irrelevant piece of information. Yeah. And then but with white victims and things like that, it's just almost like, oh, but I don't I don't know. I don't know. It's just like no, say it. You can always they can always take it okay. out if you decide you don't like it. It's like I'm trying to think of how I want to say this. Mm-hmm. It's just there's a huge difference in how these cases are treated usually, especially in terms of how especially in the past, how police would take action on these cases. Oh, 100%. Because you're right. That's why a lot of these serial killers would target these marginalized groups because they understood that the police would do nothing. Y- yeah. They wouldn't. They they even in Dahmer's case, uh, they oh, even. Mm. I'm not even like, I'm not angry about this. We're completely going off script, <laughs> but this is all shit we wanted to say anyway. Because in Dahmer's case, they returned a victim. It was, I believe, it was Conorak. Mm-hmm. They returned him to Jeffrey. Yeah, I re- I remember hearing about that. Like, and it's he was me. clearly it's like, are you serious. He was clearly like under the influence, clearly trying to get away, and yeah. all Dahmer had to do was like look them in the eyes and just be like, "Oh, I'm sorry. Like, that's my sexual partner." Exactly. And then they just brought him back. And that discrimination like, no, they, goes beyond like his r- racial background. It's like kind of oh. tying in sexuality and right. the fact that like at that time, being gay was 
it was just a different time, if that makes sense. I mean, and yeah, I would agree with it, that. It was just handled differently. And it's just disgusting to me to see how the police were so withdrawn from that situation. Yeah, like, like just the disregard, because I think a lot of times in these cases, like you hear about like several close encounters with the police, where if the police had just asked one more question, one question. been a little more suspicious, bothered to talk to a victim, it would have been like so many lives could be saved. And specifically in the case of Conorak, if they even looked, they just took one singular look in his room, they would have seen a dead body. Right. Like if they had just been like, oh, okay, let's just like walk him inside with you or can we just like take a look? Yeah. It's exactly. just like crazy to me. And I think, uh, I think my brain is drawing a complete blank right now. So <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. mine just like all thoughts just left. No, I, I don't know that that's like all thoughts just left. I think it's like you feel emotionally the need to express something and you just like let that take over. And I think yeah. that's a this is the perfect place to do that. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good place to do that. I think, um yeah, so going off kind of like this like white feminist narrative and aspect of true crime and like staying safe. It, I mean, yeah, a part of it comes with, like, how cases get propagated, how cases get funding, get awareness. Like, because a lot of times media has the power to control how hard police works. Like, putting that pressure on a police department can make them actually do shit. And so a lot of times, like, if the victim – a lot of times if the victim is white and a woman, like, you don't even have to put the pressure. It's already there. Mm -hmm. And then – I mean, even if not, the media will make sure. Like, the cops are already, like, that. they're prioritizing that case. And even if they don't, the media will be, like, on their ass. Yeah. And, yeah, I just think – a little concerning <laughs> and but again i think something that was hard for me to understand mm -hmm. especially because i am a person of color but something that was hard for me to one understand and to see was the fact that i as far as i know there's three women of color and then it was uh conorak and then there's two officers mm -hmm. and they took the word of a white man a white serial killer jeffrey dahmer over three women of color wait so to me, i didn't like, remember that there were three there were three no, women at the I scene it was um it was a neighbor who lived across the street mm -hmm. uh i believe it's glenda cleveland mm -hmm. i believe she was involved in this instance at least that's how they portrayed it in the show <laughs> going back here going back to the potential fact <laughs> conflation because i did hear that they combined two women to make that character Bruh. so there's glenda cleveland who lived across the street and then there was a white woman who mm -hmm. lived right next door to Dahmer. but i know that there was it, sh they like talked about how there was three women of color and then they just completely disregarded what they were saying and how worried they were about this boy because he, oh he was God. he was clearly in trouble. Like, right. clearly. And they just took the word of Jeffrey. And mm -hmm. in my opinion, a lot of it had to do with... Jeffrey being a white guy. Exactly. Well, yeah, of course. Right. And I just... I think, like, for me, especially as a white woman who enjoys true crime, <laughs> it's really important to, like, I don't know, think about the implications and what my consumption of this media, like how who it's supporting who, what it's like what that media is portraying um and something i really wanted to talk about was like uh, that i had looked into was true crime like as a purporter of institutionalized like racism which the connection is not as clear as you might think but it's definitely there like with what we're already talking about about like making excuses for white men who do crime and i feel like that's something you see a lot even with like people who commit mass shootings if they are white the excuse it is ridiculous and like disgusting like Always. the the person who committed the parkland shooting just got off um he's not going to get the death penalty he's going to get life in prison and while some people like some people argue for one or the other as being a worse punishment but the victim's families wanted the death penalty and the mm -hmm. jury was like no he's he's young he's a kid 
he's white. <laughs> they but didn't say it's that. Like but they say the whole he's young, he's a kid argument. But the victims were young. The victims were kids. And like that's sad. Right. Like it's almost like they're discounting the lives of the people. Like they had their whole entire lives ahead of them. And him as a young person took that away from them. And right. They like it never have that. Back. Right. And it, it shouldn't matter what their age is. Like, no, it shouldn't. Right. And I'll, I feel like a lot of times like or there's the whole thing where they're like, oh, they're like it was like a mentally ill killer. Well, OK. If they're not legally insane, like, I don't even care, like, sociopathy and psychopathy, yes, those influence someone, but if they're not, like, legally insane, which almost all the time these killers and murderers and rapists, like, are not, then I'm sorry, that should not get to be used as an excuse or defense. No, because then it also, in some ways, creates a stigma around mental health. Right. And it's contributing to the stigma that exists now, and it's mm-hmm. it's so unhelpful in terms of people with genuine real mental health issues trying to get the help for that trying to you know talk about it with other people because Mm -hmm. you have people using it as uh get out of jail free (laughs) literally like every single time right it's like it's disgusting yeah and i something um we like jumped around so much (laughs) but that's okay i'm not mad about it i think we touched (laughs) on like literally almost everything so far like we haven't missed many important points i can't wait to get into our very oh not yet not yet not yet not yet it's gonna be good though yeah not yet not yet (laughs) so um and then i guess so something that i had read about earlier online today was how okay so you know how like a lot of times like throughout history there have been like these very like racist narratives and almost all of them center on a person of color a man of color doing something to a white woman and like those things have been used to justify like native like indigenous like complete like colonization and genocide it's been used to justify slavery it's been used to justify lynching all sorts of things where like and a lot of times the perpetrators of these stories are white women but also a lot of times white men who like will take this and be like here here is a reason for us to do these terrible things to people of color and like you even see that shit with Donald Trump like when he was like oh the Mexicans are like coming in and like assaulting our women it's like so that I feel like that um as historic as that motif and it's called like a danger story in this article that or this piece I guess that I had read even though it seems super historical it's not like it's still going on and being like implicated in pretty subtle ways and so something that I was reading about is that regardless of the clear I want to say clear like differences like so in true crime I feel like a lot of times what has like been seen is like it's a lot of white on white crime or white serial killers Mm -hmm. and with white victims because like the white serial killer is more easy to empathize with and then the white victim like already more palatable to like an audience and so I think what you have is sort of that even though like it's not always people of color like like true crime stories are oftentimes not a person of color inflicting harm or pain onto a white woman or white women but like the sheer act of like white women like putting like a fear of crime and a fear and an an intense desire for carnal and like prison justice has like real implications outside of the true crime world because i think like it's like hmm, i'm i'm my brain's doing a lot of work right now. <laughs> My gears are the just like going. Are they are fucking turning. But it's like, I feel like a lot of times like with true crime, it's like, oh, we want the death penalty. We want the maximum sentence. It's like this very clear black and white huh, sense of justice. <laughs> and yet then you carry that over to anyone else who's committing that crime. And so like you, you like ignore like, be like, oh, we need more police. We need the police to do their job. The police like sometimes they get portrayed as incompetent but a lot of times it's like oh they're the ones who solved the case they're the ones who figured it out and so like but then true crime doesn't like turn around and like address the implications of what having a bigger 
prison industry or like a bigger police force has on people of color and like people who are like actually not serial killers yeah because especially because oftentimes the increase in police presence is in areas where it's the population is primarily marginalized groups right so the increased policing can be dangerous especially in these areas right especially in a time of police brutality you Mm -hmm. know what i'm saying so but then your point also reminded me of something this is kind of off topic but you mentioned donald trump and you mentioned uh crimes where it's like there's you said the parkland shooter where they were saying oh he was just a kid Mm -hmm. well there was the uh, film came out uh Mm -hmm. when they see us on netflix very good oh i feel like i've heard about that yeah it's about these five young boys who (gasps) wait it was in the 80s i read about this earlier today yes so um there is this woman uh this Mm -hmm. white woman she was on a jog and then she ended up being raped and murdered in Mm -hmm. central park and these five boys just happened to be in central park at the wrong time so it was like in this sense it was Mm -hmm. wrong place wrong time yeah and they were all framed for her murder yeah and And the media portrayal was awful exactly it was awful one and two donald trump pushed for the death penalty for these young men wait and it's that same energy did not carry did he have a legal career or was he just like going around being like he was never a lawyer was he at the time i don't think he was but he he was like a belief so i'm not politically influential person like just going around saying like his name was you know he was a well-known man especially at that time so it's just hearing that come out of his mouth especially someone who would later go on to be our president is ridiculous to right. me right because one they were all young and two they didn't even commit the crime and right. it's it's just sad to me that i don't think i'd ever see that same energy from him or anyone else that had that same belief carry on to any white offender probably not and i think like i just booped my nose on <laughs> but i also think that something with there's nothing wrong, I think, like for women or white women or consumers of true crime to be hyper vigilant and to be concerned about crime happening to them. I think like that's kind of and one of the st- papers was like, well, we can tell that like women like reading true crime more than men and we can tell that they're concerned about it. But we don't know why they're so afraid of crime when they don't <laughs> they're not the victims of violent crime as much as men. And I want to be like. I wonder why. Like, somebody <laughs> needs to go turn on a little light bulb in those writers' yeah. minds. Like, like, here you go. Those gears are not turning. Those There's gears weren't like turning. Nothing. They were running it's really slow. They were like, why yeah. are they so afraid? Yeah, like, but how come they're afraid? At the same time, like, a lot of these crimes, like, a lot of, statistically speaking, white women are never, like, even if they are, like, yes, they're more likely to be the victim of violent crime than white men. They are still far less likely, either through, like, police brutality or any other kind of, like, hate crime or anything, to fall victim to violent crime than women of color and men of color. And so, like, it kind of just, like, puts this false belief out there. And then I think also it's something where, like, white women, like, are able to, like, fear and observe true crime without acknowledging that hate crimes and, like, violent racism or homophobia is a reality. And it's not just a story for victims. Like it's not like what you had already said. It's not just a story. And I think I think a big part with being like someone who is white and consuming true crime and like is coming from that place of privilege where you can imagine yourself stepping into this role of victimhood. Not to say and this is not to say at all that like white women have never been victims of violent crime or that those victims don't deserve to be talked about. But I'm saying like in the context of like a case like Jeffrey Dahmer, which was like entirely driven by racism, homophobia and classism mostly just racism it's like a white woman is able to kind of like step into this role and like imagine herself undergoing that and then step back out into a world where statistically speaking she is far more protected from it than she thinks 
That's true. And I think, again, it kind of alludes to the idea that media is consumed differently from different demographics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, ver- it's consumed very differently because in some instances, people are able to just stop watching it the second that they turn the show off, the second they turn the podcast off, mm-hmm. and they can walk away from it. But for other people, it's less of a fantasy, more of a reality, and it's not something they walk away from. Right. Because if they're it's not... It's like something you walk into. Exactly. If they're not experiencing a violent, gruesome, you know, experience... They know someone who did. Exactly. Yeah. Or they're experiencing, like, discrimination in another right. sense. And, like, microaggressions that are, exactly. let's be real, the seeds of that shit. And that stuff you don't get to walk away from. Like, mm-hmm. that's in your face. That's what you're dealing with on a daily basis. So I think... Without a doubt, you're right. Like, different demographics are able to consume things differently. Right, like from a, yeah, 100%. And um, I just wanted to, like, read this little quote that I put in here. <laughs> because if I don't read it, why do I put it in here? It. But this was yeah. from, like, this law review as well. It says, scholars and others often characterize danger narratives, which those were those stories that I was talking to you about where, like, in a historical contest, it's, like, usually a black man persecuting against a white woman or harming a white woman, not persecuting. Um um, often characterize danger narratives as violence-focused stories with explicit racial and racist intent and outcomes, while true crime is generally treated in the media as entertainment in which crime and punishment are explored largely as if people of color do not exist. And so, like, either functionally they don't exist because every character in a character, there I go again, bruh, <laughs> every person, every individual in a case is white or, like, the law, like, so blatantly ignores these victims that it's like they don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess so this kind of turns into something that you were starting to touch on earlier, Mac, which was like, can true crime be consumed and portrayed ethically? So I'd love to. What do you think? <laughs> I think that it can, but I don't think it's something that can be changed immediately. I think that it has to be done over time and there has to be like a concentrated effort to do so. And I think. I was actually really impressed by the podcast you were talking about, um, My Favorite Murder. Yeah, they do a decent, they do a pretty good job of like trying to contextualize the victims' lives no matter what. But I have not listened to it enough to truly Mm. say that it's a good resource. I will say, however, that every true crime podcast that either influenced my opinion in this episode that I read about or that I have listened to myself are linked below in the description. But I cannot say that i speak for the ethics in all of them (laughs) i don't (laughs) i think with anything there's always room for change and there's always room to have it done more ethically and if it's for the wish of the victims to include them in that but i again with that being said i think that it's something that won't change for a long time unfortunately Mm -hmm. and even though i hope that it does i just feel like it's going to take a long time right And I know, like, I feel like a lot of times, like, people who watch true crime will, like, bring up the honestly valid points of, like, there are cases that have been reopened and solved or, like, wrongful convictions that have been overturned because of true crime support and, like, media. And I think, I think that's where, like, a crucial difference of whether or not you're involving the victim and the victim's families comes in. Because if you're getting a case overturned, if you're reopening it, like, that does involve directly, like, working with and hearing from people that were close to the victim whereas like simple like I don't want to say simple but just regular consumption of that doesn't and so I think like 
something that I had put in here just for like considerations is like um, kind of like making sure that you either involve benefit or get consent from those that are actually connected to the case and not the serial killer because a fuck them <laughs> who cares what they think yeah. and b they're gonna want it and like that's not who you need to be like I just think it's kind of crazy like even with the Ted Bundy cases like I just don't think those people should be being given a platform if you want to like keep that shit tuck it away for some psychiatrist or psychologist to look at when they're deciding how to treat people how to help people that's great but I don't think that that should be aired you actually <laughs> made me think of something too mm-hmm. I think the a major argument for why we still have like a lot of this content coming out is that oh, we want to put it out there so that this never happens again. But who's to say that the people that are consuming it are going to make an effort to stop it from happening again, almost? I feel like Mm -hmm. you're right. It should go towards, like, it should be... The audience should maybe, maybe we should consider the audience Mm -hmm. being professionals who work with who work in therapy or like work with people with different... Right. Like, Like for things coming directly from that person. Exactly, because they can make direct, like concentrated efforts for this stuff Mm -hmm. but also i think another step in the right direction may be if we stop making films that are complete reenactments of Mm -hmm. stuff and more of educational uh, like an actual documentary and not a dramatization the dramatizations are not that helpful and they kind of like that information is that information is out there exactly and that information is just not as solid as you would see hopefully see in a documentary because typically you see more factual evidence right. you hear more about the case and less about you know just like added details right and, you know, change stories right ultimately there are parts of true crime that try to spread awareness about issues and like critique the justice system and the police system but like at the end of the day the majority of people consuming and making true crime content are doing it for the thrill and that thrill usually is like coming off the cost of the victims and literally anyone who has the same identity as the victims like i see this like online a lot where it's like this argument um of like hey like you can say something like really rude about how someone looks and that person will never know but now someone who looks like that is like hurt and affected and this is like kind of a similar thing the victims of true crime may never know or like feel because maybe they're not with like around anymore or like they just it doesn't reach them like those comments and like that dejection or victim blaming But, like, people who are, like, people of color or women or victims of crime or just, like, victims of that shit see that and they're like, oh, this is what, like, this white chick who watches this podcast (laughs) thinks of me. Like, wow. You bring up a really good and strong point with that because it makes me almost think, like, my brother is obviously a person of color, too, and he's 10 years old. So it's almost like the media is telling him, you don't matter. Cases Mm -hmm. with people that look like you don't matter. And it's like it's sad like yeah. it, it's sad to think about all the like i mean granted i hope that my brother's not watching like a lot of this content <laughs> but like it's like scary yeah because maybe i'm thinking yeah. like even i'm being told that you know in these cases like they're handled differently they're sometimes they're not portrayed as respectfully or sometimes they don't get the coverage that they deserve and so it's hard to see that because it's like i'm being told every single day and every single space i'm in that Things that happen to you and people that look like you aren't going to be covered as much and they don't matter as much right. to us as a society because you're not the outline of a perfect victim. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't paint the story the way that we want it to be painted. And, right. You know, you're not as like a story with someone who looks like you isn't as easy for 
an audience to consume as maybe a white woman would be. Mm-hmm. But I say that with the most respect for victims, like regardless of what they look like or no, how but they identify. That's but that's a completely essential point. Mm-hmm. And like, I feel like that's definitely one of the biggest messages that true crime is giving, whether it's meaning to or not. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Damn. This is by far my favorite thing ever. Like, no, I've I think this so much. I've been wanting to talk about the ethics of true crime for so long with literally anyone and so i'm yeah, so glad ins- that you so mentioned this like this. i just i feel like i learned a lot we like exchanged a lot of ideas and i'm super duper glad yeah. we did this i will say like i honestly learned a lot just from listening to you and like hearing your mm-hmm. perspective on this stuff was really helpful for me as a person mm-hmm. i was like wait a minute Loki, <laughs> that's a good point <laughs> like no 100 <laughs> percent. same to you you know, now I don't have to watch the Dahmer stuff. I'm just kidding. <laughs> now I don't have to watch I, it. Honestly, I could just tell you everything. <laughs> I, I'm good. I, I feel like I could easily, uh, like we said, like dramatization feels kind of like redundant. Yeah. I could go to the Wikipedia page. Like. Yeah. And it's like now I've almost found a way for me to feel like personally how I could mm-hmm. ethically consume what I'm seeing. Like mm-hmm. maybe instead of watching dramatized versions, maybe I should just shift to more factual things, like right. more set in stone, like documentaries yeah. that involve people exactly. who are involved so i think maybe if we're not gonna make the jump you know to, to start ethically producing right. things we need to find we what's need been to produced. ethically consume things you know right before well yeah because you know i'm not like a ross major or anything but you have like <laughs> you have like russell no you have like <laughs> demand and like what is it demand and supply Sup- <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't think the other word. I couldn't think the other word. Right? Oh, like supply demand and demand. Supply. Okay, okay. You have like the issue of like supply and demand, <laughs> where <laughs> where like if you know if people start consuming things more ethically, maybe the production will shift a little bit because they'll see the shift in like what we want. Right, and I yeah, I just think like finding ethical content already like not like mukbang. There's literally I forgot to mention this earlier. There are literally YouTube channels where they do mukbang while they're talking about true crime. Like they're like, and then the victim's body was cut open and they take a bite of the hot dog it's like bro what are you doing i just i can't even hate because that is me i what do you mean you'd watch that (laughs) no i know it's like i do that it's like i'm watching these shows while While i'm doing my hair while i'm getting ready let me tell you i take my phone in the shower every morning Mm -hmm. and i'm watching documentaries i'm watching true crime right like i'm like painting my nails yeah painting your nails i'm like eating dinner like (laughs) and i'm like wait wait, you're so right like like, what did they just say happened right like i feel like that actually brings up such a good point of like as a consumer of this can i even if i'm eating my dinner while listening to true crime can i even like how how judgmental do i get to be of someone who does that same thing and then just films it so they can make money exactly because i mean i do it in private though (laughs) (laughs) no that's such a good point max said look in the fucking mirror page (laughs) like be for real i'm like wait Peyton's kind of hating on me right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're right, though. You bring up a really good point because I do the exact same thing. And so I guess the takeaway, what is our takeaway? Like, what is our ultimate? I guess the takeaway of true. No more grubbing and true crime. Normal grubbing and true crime. (laughs) Anti-grubbing true crime. No, like, you need to, like, sit down, listen, and, like, actually absorb what is being said. Because I think, like, another part of desensitization is, like, multitasking when you're listening to this shit. Or being doing, working on other things. Like, oh, I'm just, like, painting my nails. I'm just, like, on the treadmill. Like, okay, well... (laughs) Like, I have watched it at the gym too. I, on the, I on have the to Stairmaster. <gasps> not the oh, bro, 
bro, we're taking the stairway to hell. Like, I'm legitimately stairway to hell. I'm just like (laughs) climbing up, watching this horrific pub, just like what? (laughs) And then I go home and I make my dinner. Yeah. And then I'm watching the show again. (sighs) And then I'm watching it before I go to sleep. Okay. So then it's in my dreams. Okay. Okay, Mac. You. I know. Mac needs to have like a a, an aura cleanse, like Mac. (laughs) I do. That's why I watch Footloose. That was my aura cleanse. I've never seen Footloose. Well, Oops. you better get to it. <laughs> okay. I, I feel like that was almost a reference, but it definitely wasn't. <laughs> so I guess our takeaway is... Mm, reminds me of something, though. I'm not going <gasps> to... No! 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 no, no, no. <laughs> not the Headphone foot. Headphone warning. No. Headphone warning. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no. Of course no. I watch loose. Of course. Of course. Of course she loves when those feet are loose. <laughs> the promiscuous yeah. foot. My dogs are in their cage today, though. I was keeping I, them yeah. in. Yeah, I didn't even look. look. They were out episode one, but they're in oh, episode damn, two. Oh, damn, damn. Yeah, it's getting cold. We're not going to see from the yeah. toes. The toes are going into hibernation. Ooh. Yes, they are. And toes are going to start being in fuzzy socks, too. Ooh, get the toes all cozy. Is it time? It is time. Yes. So I think ultimately. I think you should introduce it because it was you who found it. Okay, I will. So having expressed our opinion, which is that we will no longer. My new resolution is to no longer eat. Or work out, or do other shit when I'm listening to oh, true crime content. I was like, no, wait, not like ever. Not eating anymore? I was like, wait, yeah. see dude. episode six of season one. I <laughs> if I was allowed to eat in this room, I'd be eating right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, not the mukbangs. <laughs> Mac, you just Whoa. admitted it, Mac. Oh. <laughs> mm, anyways, <laughs> so now that we have kind of gone over, I guess, of like some of the important factors of consuming ethical true crime, like not multitasking, making sure you're hearing from the victims, making sure you're thinking about. If you have privileges, like how your privileges influence your ability to benefit from and find comfort in true crime, we are going to introduce, and I was so hesitant to do this because it feels like it goes completely against everything we just talked (laughs) about, but I'm going to try to do it in a way that frames our discussion and kind of offers an example, if you will. So I was reading this article in the New York Times, and this author had mentioned something about the Michigan murders, and I was like, wait, what? Like, what is that? And it <laughs> turns out, like, I had no idea that there was an active serial killer in Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti in the late 60s. And there was, like, a Umish press release. I Like, it was the first thing I Googled. And, of course, here's an example of sensationalism and dramatization. It says, the Michigan murders describes it as the true story of the savage co-ed killings by the boy who could have lived next door. Bruh. <laughs> they always do There's that, an example though. of, like, exactly what it's always not. Th- yeah. Right. And so... Mac was so kind as to then <laughs> take the baton from me and look into literally every other aspect of this. And oh so yeah. I just wanted to use a local example that is not the Unabomber <laughs> to, yeah. to introduce it's this. It's kind of embarrassing that I didn't know. You didn't know? He, yeah, the yeah uni- I didn't know. The Unabomber went to University of Michigan no as idea. a grad student, I think, in mathematics. Um, Yeah. Oh. And he never, like, actually harmed anyone here, but he was active while he was here, like, sending things to people in other places. That's a lot to think about. Yeah. Like, that's crazy. Wow. So, aside from that, which is already known, and how interesting that that's known and not the murder of yeah. women. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> back insane. at it again. But, yeah, so if, Mac, if yeah. you'd like to, like, share some information on this, which yeah. will be completely new to me. <laughs> I'm excited. So, should I do my true crime voice? Yes, the answer no, is No, yes. Mac, we I just talked about this. <laughs> like, no dramatization. Um, sorry, guys. Okay. Wait. In the late 1960s. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to do Girl, it. Girl, so yeah. Guys, guys, we, guys, we've learned our this lesson. This is my attempt to do true crime ethically. I'm honestly, bear with me. I'm going to try my best. But It shouldn't be that hard. So <laughs> <laughs> is it that hard? <laughs> but 
In the late 1960s in southeastern Michigan, there was a string of gruesome murders, and all the victims were young women, and the bodies of the seven victims were found in Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor. Sorry, I, I used to think it was Ypsi, so I had to practice that. That's really cute. I had to practice <laughs> that one. <laughs> but in an effort to do it ethically, I just first wanted to address the victims and their names and ages. I think that's something important to at least address because they are re- real people behind these yeah. stories. So one of the victims was a 13-year-old girl. Her name was Dawn Bassam. And I'm sorry if I mess up anyone's names in this, but the other victims were Mary Flesser, a 19-year-old Eastern Michigan University student, Joan Shell, Shell, <laughs> Joan Shell, a 20-year-old who was also a student at Eastern Michigan University, Jane Mixer, who was a 23, 23-year-old law student at U of M, actually, and a 16-year-old Marilyn Skelton. Uh, another 23-year-old U of M arts graduate, Alice Callum, and she was also enrolled in graduate school at the time of her death. And the final victim was 18-year-old Karen Sue Benjamin, who was a freshman at EMU. So the cases for these seven victims went unsolved for a long time because there is a large lack of clues. And in fact, six different police agencies were unable to solve the murders until a break in the case came by chance so Mm. actually the break came from a michigan state trooper who (gasps) shot up exactly who tipped off the police um, (gasps) and but but the state trooper turned out to be the um killer's uncle shut up i'm sorry for saying shut up so many times (laughs) my oh i'm done talking after (laughs) no 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 no. after all my after all of my um anti- cop messaging um i reflect to inform you <laughs> and podcast listeners that my family has a long line of michigan state troopers and so that's why i was gasping i was like i wonder if it's someone they knew it's like literally like do you know a corporal lake my lake? grandfather probably did yes so the uncle of the killer his name was corporal like and he had asked the killer to house it while he was on vacation and when he came back from vacation he stated that things within his home were not as they should have been, and this included the fact that his basement had been repainted. And I know personally, if I came home and my basement was repainted, I'd be like, who did this? What the fuck? What's like, going on? Like, no ne- no person's going to be like, hey, I, I just thought your basement exactly. needed a new paint job. Like, that's not that's normal. That's so concerning. <laughs> but it was later suspected that his basement was repainted because the killer had actually used yep. it to kill one of his victims, uh, Karen Soup benjamin in the basement and then um the remnants of the murder scene were covered with the paint so that's yeah. so fucking stupid yeah. i'm so sorry it, that's it so stupid, stupid. because okay. they even found like within the paint they found like a hand imprint <gasps> and that's like they were able to connect it to him and, and then, like her d her yeah, fingerprints they took, like i believe they had like blood and hair samples oh my too God. so yeah and so it was that tip that kind of shifted the focus mm-hmm. towards that this suspect man. yeah yeah uh john norman collins as the main suspect and for two years he was like terrorizing this community and he had recurring like s- with stalking rapes and mutilation and murder of innocent women he was finally caught and then found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without parole on august 19 1970 and he's currently serving his sentence in marquette michigan that's where my parents are from oh 
this is insane. <laughs> yeah, no, it is actually crazy. And his trial also became known as the longest trial in the Washtenaw County. Wow. Yeah. God damn. Do you know how long yeah. it went on for? Honestly, I'm not sure, but I decided to keep out the details of the deaths because a lot of them were really gruesome. And right, I just and felt like in light of what we talked about, it'd be best to, to just, just not, not talk, <laughs> yeah. not give them that due diligence, not look into the childhood, not no. just say like this happened if and now like dear listener you are aware of it and if you want to go find that information do it yourself and do it with caution exactly. and do it with ethics <laughs> and i didn't even want to really include like almost background on collins because i feel like he committed a horrible act and he doesn't deserve even an opportunity for someone yeah. to justify what he did like right at the end of the day these people seven young women like their lives were lost and right. that's something that can't be erased and so i feel like without a doubt there's no justification for right did. and so i and guess the, the oh. whole like i'm sorry no, the whole done. like could have lived next door trope and like things like that is just like i don't know it's just not something i'm pretty sure that was i don't know if that was written by someone at university of michigan but it was yeah. a university of michigan press release which tells me that at least someone was affiliated exactly which, like you know it's what like i wouldn't even put it past this fucking school to yeah. be like yeah we had victims that were went to our school that were killed in, in your this own community and, and, your own and that's school. how you talk about it is like crazy to me right and the fact that it's not like something that's more well known too right is i just can't no i was really interested that i'd never heard about that because i'd never heard about uh, it i mean usually when it. people talk about like true true crime in connection to this school it's always the unabomber which i mean obviously he's like a really prolific killer but like i just there's a lot of stories and a lot of bad people out there yeah and i think too we kind of have to retrain ourselves into knowing that there's no look to serial killers there's no look to someone who mm -hmm. commits these crimes right and oftentimes because we have that same thing like oh they could have lived next door or, do or they could have lived next door or oh they look like just a normal person but that's racial no profiling exactly, <laughs> that's no racial profiling there's no normal person quote-unquote like there's it doesn't exist like right like oh they don't look like they commit yeah. crime just say he was wealthy and white and move exactly. on like, like all the time you see that like oh he just seems so normal like or he looks so normal like uh like looks what not is looking normal mean? right and that that's not to like blame victims yeah for not anything at all like that, not but like the all. media who's like we can't believe this happened because that's the whole thing with ted bundy too they're like right. he was like a, con a conventionally attractive man and i'm like well he probably okay. used that for privilege exactly. like, like no it wonder, doesn't yeah. matter it's like right like okay that's beyond the point retraining ourselves to know that like not in a scary way but that anybody is capable of these things and that it's important to be aware of one that there are different mental health issues that we do need to be aware of and mm -hmm. that we do need to make more of an effort to you know work on and like work provide on help for those people. Yeah. Yeah. yes 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 so yeah I feel yeah. like that's the main overwhelming issue. I think so, too. And so in a slight, okay, not slight, in a 90-degree <laughs> neck-breaking pivot, a we are going to do a six-word first-time story. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, six-word first-time stories are a segment that we do on essentially every episode. You can submit your own if you find the link in the description. And just kind of summarizing one of or like like not necessarily in the traditional way but your first sexual experience in six words so for this episode it is my yeast infection smelled so bad which i guess <laughs> okay it could mean that they had the yeast infection going in or that they got it as a result of what happened i don't know enough about gynecology. i just like, <laughs> doesn't like know hurt? how you get one i've never had one i think 
that would be painful. Do you think? Uh, do I we think that it happened like as they were like before the fact or after the Cause fact? Because it's a bacterial infection. Right. I doubt that. Mm. I I highly doubt that they lost their virginity while they had a yeast infection yeah, because I that would hurt so bad. I didn't and know they smelled. They do. Really, that sucks. No, and it's just like a bacterial infection. I wouldn't put it past it being a result of their. Uh, No, it probably was a result, but like, does that? I don't understand. I feel like we need. I feel like we need to Google how these worked because I'm wondering if you can get. I don't want to spread sexual misinformation, and so I will Google. So, so maybe, maybe your first time was with a woman, and maybe if you're like also like have a vagina, then you got a yeast infection from them or something, or maybe. I don't know. Regardless, I'm so sorry because that sounds I am awful. too. It's better and than honestly, getting pregnant though, or yeah, like getting I an STD. Say, but <laughs> it's I think better than an STD or but pregnancy. But I think if you get a yeast infection, they you have to put an egg. Girl, it, well, it's a not a, egg. Right, it's not a real egg. It's not a real <laughs> egg, but it looks like an egg, and it's like medication. Back into that you, traditional you have medicine. To, like put it up. <laughs> Your vagina. Okay, so please do not take any of what we just said about yeast infections, aside from what I googled <laughs> yeah. for granted, yeah, yeah, and yeah, maybe no, our no, next no. segment will be on yeast <laughs> infections and Honestly, STDs. Power we to already you did a birth control app. We could do an STD app. Yeah, I think that's important. And honestly, power to you because I feel awful. I know that must have been terrible. I'm glad you got through it. Yeah. I hope now when you have sex, you don't get a yeast infection. Oh, God. Yeah, I feel really awful. Oh, my God. Well, (laughs) thank you guys so much (laughs) for listening and learning alongside Mac and I today. Yeah, thank you. And here at What the F, the F stands for, do you want to say it? I do. All right. Thank you so much, guys, for listening and learning with Peyton and I. At what the F, the F stands for fresh, funny, fearless, feminist, and fuck. What do you stand for? Oh, you ate. <laughs> yes! Peyton, that was so much fun. Go. What a man, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man.